Our Father, what tremendous words we sang and put to such lovely music, but it is the truth uh, that warms our hearts. It is the truth that excites us, that encourages us, that instructs us, that comforts us. It is the reality of the gospel and all of its fullness uh, that delights our hearts. And so we come as those who rejoice in having received grace, having seen the glory of Christ by the work of the Spirit within us. And we ask you now to give us hearts that listen to your word, that listen and consider our own hearts, particularly as we continue to think about the effect of technology and the culture on our lives. And I just pray that you would help us together to be more holy in the way that we use the good gifts that you give to us as men. And we commit this to you, and we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, before I introduce, let me just make a a few comments uh, here. One is, uh, there is a book, y'all got an email uh, about a few books that are in the book nook. Some that are related to uh, the topic at hand, others that are uh, marriage book. One we've already had in the past, everybody bought them, and so then I bought some more. That's the uh, This Momentary Marriage by Piper. And then the other one is uh, by Ray Ortland. It's a, it's a short book. It's really good. Be worth you picking up. But one book in particular, 12 Ways That Your Phone Is Changing You, uh, is a really, really excellent book by a, a very engaging author. Uh, but Jesse reminded me that, that for those who don't want to buy the book, which I can't imagine, uh, and would rather listen to it on audio, I know if you drive and have long distances, then, uh, then it's free on christianaudio.com. So I haven't used that before, but you might check with Jesse or I can send out a link uh, for that as well. Uh, They do have free books every now and then, and so that one is available. Uh, Secondly, I would mention that there were many people that heard Kathleen's uh, presentation of her her trip, and that was so great to see so many people down there. Uh, I do hope that even as we rejoice in what God did in Kathleen and in her trip, uh, we as well, you know, we'd hope one day to be able to send... uh, others from our group onto a short missions trip. Um, they really have wonderful fruit that they bear in the lives when uh, done properly. And so I, I hope that one day that we could do that. And thirdly, this is the, the last public announcement. Uh, be praying. We're going to do this week on social media, and then next week will be our last one. We're going to look at social media and the internet and spiritual disciplines. Uh, so we're going to look at that from a couple of different angles. Um, But be praying of what we'll do next. There's been a few suggestions, and uh, I'm not exactly sure. So just pray that the Spirit would lead us into what would be the most helpful uh, as we dive into a book of Scripture uh, together. Well, that being said, let me introduce this morning's uh, message. And we're going to talk uh, this morning about uh, social media and Christian character. Social media and Christian character. We did a broad overview of just the Internet and social media in general. Uh, We looked at it last uh, week about the internet and pornography, and this morning we're going to look at social media and Christian character. And and as always, we're we're hitting highlights, we're looking at it very broadly, there's there's more that could be said, that's why I encourage you to read, um, which will take many of these things uh, deeper than we're able to do this morning. Uh, But I hope this is helpful to us, uh, encouraging Social media is certainly a part of our lives. It's a fabric of our culture, uh, not only in America, but really across the world uh, in many places. I mean, we're 
not surprised to see cell phones and iPhones and those type of things uh, in our culture, but uh, we're also not surprised anymore to see that kind of technology on the plains and the deserts of Africa and remote places and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it is, okay, remember our word, ubiquitous. Uh, it's ever-present. It's everywhere. It's simply a part of our lives. Uh, let me begin by just defining social media for us. What, what is meant by social media? What do I mean by social media? Uh, and in general, what, do we, what are we talking about when we use that kind of language? A simple definition, this was taken from that ever-faithful uh, Apple Dictionary, uh, it, which did a good job, describes it this way. Web, it's social media is websites and applications that enable users to create and share content or to participate in social networking. Now, that's a pretty good definition. Uh, it's a websites and applications that enable users to create and share content or to participate in social networking. In other words, it's a medium made possible through the internet that allows us really to publish ourselves, view what others publish about themselves, and interact with each other instantaneously, broadly, but without physical contact. That's what it has enabled. And as I mentioned, it is an ever-present reality uh, in our culture and in our lives. Let me give just some general statistics and idea. And again, you could spend the whole time just giving statistics. So I'm just going to pull out a few to give us a, an idea of this. Uh, since the advent of the iPhone in 2007 uh, up to our current day, it is estimated that 98% of all households, uh, and in this survey dealing with children that have children 0 to 8 years old, Probably better would be one to eight years old, uh, I think. But zero to eight-year-olds have some form of mobile device. And by the age of eight, 42% of these children will have their own device. With With children five to eight years old spending an average of nearly three hours a day on a tablet or smartphone device. That's that's pretty much a revolution. Uh, That's pretty much uh, an an ever-present... Uh, reality in households across America, 98%. By comparison, this study showed that children 0 to 8 spend only half hour daily reading or being read to, which also suggests, which wasn't noted in this particular uh, study, but that means it's that much less time interacting with family and interacting with others. So nearly three hours a day on some kind of electronic device, less than half an hour Reading or reading being read too. And these numbers increase significantly when moving into the teen years. And there's a variety of ways that we use our phones and that uh, children use their phones. Uh, But some of the most common ways are this. These are the highest percentages. Uh, About 44% were for video and uh, for watching videos, that type of thing, or video games. And then coming in just behind the social networking with about 42%. Commenting on the use of the phone as entertainment, which would be in the videos and gaming, that type of thing, one said this, Our ability to access entertainment and escape from reality has swiftly and effortlessly encroached on every aspect of our lives. Impatiently waiting at a traffic stop? Grab your smartphone. Is your wife or husband annoying you? Log in to Netflix. Is the subject in class dry or irrelevant? Check your Twitter timeline. Bored? 
Instead of meditating and praying, we go searching for Pokemon. It's not an overstatement to say that for much of our culture and much of our life centers around the little device that we hold in our hand and the computers that so commonly are in front of our face. It, again, has just become a reality of life. And because it is so prevalent and because it is such a central reality of our existence, it has massive impacts, as we would expect. Within this new era of internet and social media, a wide door of opportunity for good and for service and for truth has been opened up on one side of the coin. Through social media, one individual can reach potentially hundreds or, and thousands, even tens of thousands and beyond with truth, with scripture, with sermons, with quotes, with Christ-centered perspective on life and events to help and encourage others. All of us have been on the receiving end of that. Some way that we've been reminded of eternal truth that stayed with us through the day. A quote that has been helpful to us. A scripture passage that refreshed our hearts. A sermon that instructed and helped and encouraged us. Moreover, there are incredible opportunities to evangelize and reach large numbers of people. There are... Uh, ministries such as Navigators and others that have over 250 websites around the world that reach a variety of people and into places that otherwise we would not have access to. So there's incredible good that can be done with social media and the advent of the internet. This new capability, however, has also provided a platform that has as in, and is shaping the way we relate to others, we view ourselves and connect to the world And unfortunately, when we look at general culture and the general impact, uh, it's not so much a positive impact as it is a negative impact. In her book, I, Jen, Jean Twain, notes of the present generation, born in 1995 and later, so really she's dealing with a group that from 1995, I think it was to about 2005, born in that era. That's the generation she's talking about. Born in 1995 and later, Uh, This generation that she titles iGen grew up with cell phones, had an Instagram page before they started high school, and do not remember a time before the internet. They are the first generation for whom internet access has been constantly available right there in their hands. So while there is much potential for good, this new medium which has become the primary uh, way that we in this, this younger generation has learned to relate to one another is going to come with great cost. This new reality has created a new way of relating to one another. As one young teenager put it, I never call people. That is, instead of calling and going for voice communication, she opts for text messaging or post through a social network site. Now again, that can have some really helpful aspects to it. For example, we all know the benefit of text messaging someone. We have instant access to them or we can just send a quick message about our whereabouts or plans or whatever in a, in a simple way that just lets others know where we are and so on and so forth. Particularly as parents, we know how helpful that can be. And so there are many helpful aspects to it. However, When that becomes the primary way that we communicate with one another and when we have a generation that has very little contrast, in other words, has very little contrast, a time where that wasn't available and they had to relate personally, either through voice calls or in the presence of others, then it has massive, massive consequences. 
Let me suggest for you some of the ways that this has impacted our culture negatively. That is, when texting and social media become the primary ways of communicating. Uh, I, I've listed four. Uh, and I'm just going to mention these. One is it's created a culture generally of selfishness. Selfishness because it's easier to text, it's easier to post than it is to do the hard work of actually having a conversation. And it's really amazing how that works out in our lives. I think that you could relate to this sometimes. You're doing a text message, you're going back and forth or emails, and you realize that what you're doing could have been accomplished in about probably a third of the time had you just picked up the phone and called someone. Uh, But that then becomes... uh, a way that teenagers communicate, and it can breed an attitude of selfishness. In other words, I don't want to put in the work of actually talking to someone. It's easier just to uh, type in a few letters on a phone. It can produce shallowness. In other words, it keeps communication at its lowest level. I mean, my kids are shocked if I actually spell a word out on a text message and don't use the abbreviations, which I don't know what half of them are anyway, but so it's better that I don't. But it brings communication down to its lowest level, what can be explained only in a few tweets or a few lines or a few symbols or emoticons becomes the primary way for many of communicating. It can produce a sense of separation, in other words, because it replaces actual communication that was already mentioned, and that could be connected with selfishness. But I'm going to build on that a little bit later. And let me mention a fourth way. Uh, It produces a kind of slavery as well. Test after test is showing the physiological effects of social media and communicating through social media on the brain, which I've mentioned before has effects that are similar to gaming and opioid use. These are becoming more and more uh, prevalent, these studies. As a matter of fact, you've probably seen in the news where a lot of top execs from Google and Facebook and even Apple are now decrying uh, the companies uh, against the companies and urging them to produce some kind of protection or software against uh, the availability to children because of its adverse effects on them. Of course, that is primarily a role of parents, uh, which is something we'll mention later. But social media poses the greatest temptation uh, to us in the degradation of our communication because it involves not only words and occasional picture to one or several friends, but personally broadcasting yourself to the widest possible number of people at once. And when I say the greatest temptation, I mean in comparison to an email uh, to text messaging. Social media poses the greatest threat or temptation because it simply it has the greatest amount of access to others. Uh, one person caught the dynamic that has been created well. Referring to Facebook, uh, this author put it like this, we started treating our friends more like an audience. Our post had less enthusiasm and more calculation. Facebook was a place to connect with friends, but it was also the most visible online representation of ourselves. And that really hits on one of the key issues. And the idea that I would want to pick up on there is the idea of an audience, of an audience. The basic structure or dynamic of relationships becomes less about the enjoyment of the other person, delighting in his or her presence and the give and take of conversation, and more about the presentation of ourselves to be observed, admired, appreciated, and viewed by others. And that that really is a basic tenet of social media. We are 
presenting ourselves to the widest number of people. Friends become an audience. And friends is a peculiar idea in and of itself with the advent of Facebook and friending, which made, as one noted, friend a verb for the first time when we friend somebody. But friends in social media is merely a reference to those who agree to view your content, not to people you have actually even met in flesh and blood in many cases or have any interaction with in the trenches of life or even know beyond what they post on social media. And yet that now has created a whole class of people that are identified as friends. In its essence, redefining that idea, the very concept of friendship as it has ever been known. I mean, who would have ever, just a few generations ago, thought of calling somebody a friend that they never even met or had no personal interaction with? And yet, that is common now. And again, because that is the case, it's produced an environment, by and large, where these friends or those who will receive our interaction or activity on social media becomes merely an audience, again, to display ourselves they're, rather than being real-life people with whom you relate to in love and self-giving and delight. One even suggested this. Uh, Facebook users have higher levels of total narcissism, exhibitionism, and leadership than Facebook non-users. In fact, it could be argued that Facebook specifically gratifies the narcissistic's individual need to engage in self-promoting and superficial behavior. Now, again, that's just a general comment. It doesn't apply to every person. But it is saying that it recognizes or it does recognize uh, the certain temptations that come and even certain personality types that are so engaged in the social media medium. Again, this is not to condemn all Facebook users, of course. As noted, Facebook and social media can have positive uses. It is to say, however, that this is predominantly how it's used that the medium itself is almost designed to create this temptation. And if honest with our own self-evaluation, more of us may see this kind of attitude in the secret corner of our motivation than we would like to admit. That secret love to be admired by the things that we post and the interaction that we have. In either case, this new environment then has come with cost And the overall effect on our culture and well-being, as I mentioned earlier, has been largely negative. Let me just give you a few. And we're going to balance this off at the end, but but let me me just make this clear to you. With this new way of connecting, uh, there again have become many unintended consequences that are very real. And some of the things I'm going to mention to you four, and these are universally recognized. It doesn't matter if you read... Uh, an article, a blog, a book by a Christian or a non-Christian author. These are, these are some pretty standard, well-established realities uh, that, have become, that are a consequence of the rise of social media. The first is depression. Depression. Again, there's been a nearly universal recognition of the linkage between the advent of social media and a sharp rise in depression and in suicide rates particularly since around 2012 and 2015, a direct correlation that has been well established. Once social media and iPhones became such a presence in the lives, particularly of teens, there was also an increase in dissatisfaction with life, depression, and teen suicide, particularly among girls. 
I believe in that statistic, I didn't write it down, that there's been as much as a 50% increase over the last four or five years. This depression stems generally from two roots. Let me give them. One is a sense of envy and sadness that comes from constantly having everyone else's successes, joys, adventures, and good things paraded in such a way to cause the person who is seeing this to view their own life negatively. When, when these teens and others are on social media, it feeds a sense of envy, what I'm not doing. And that's the second part. Feelings of exclusion, a second root of uh, depression. It causes feelings of exclusion or rejection when you can see the party you weren't invited to. The date you do not have. The anxiety of not getting the likes or someone not responding to a post. Those are real factors that are dominating the social life, the emotional life, the spiritual life of many of our teenagers of this generation. There is the constant state of exposure and peer approval that dominates the lives of so many teens. And that, it's not that all these things, of course, are new things. It is to say that with the advent of social media and the internet, uh, they have been so exponentially intensified. And again, because of the ever-present reality of these devices that attach us to the world. Uh, one young author, I believe she was 20 years old, named Jaquel Crow, wrote in a book. Uh, the book is This Changes Everything, How the Gospel Transforms the Teen Years. Um, actually, I've read about the book. I'm going to read it this week. And uh, I'm even intending to read it with our family. Uh, but she writes this. She wrote uh, on that point of the peer pressure that comes with uh, the connectivity. She says, smartphones contribute significantly to the 24-7 approval culture we live in. There's no escaping it. This is something our parents don't always understand. Because when they were teenagers, that culture was largely limited to the 9 to 3 school day. And then they retreated to the boredom of family life. But now there's 24-7 social media. There's a constant comparison and peer approval game that cannot be escaped. And it's crippling, exhausting, and undeniably stressful. You can't get away from the likes, the shares, the text, the pictures. It's like the popularity contest never ends, and it works both ways. Your smartphone gives you a front row seat to watch the uh, popularity contest, too. In other words, the main idea there is you simply can't escape it. There's no retreat because these devices are constantly with us and with our children. Thus, the ubiquitous presence of phones, with the ubiquitous presence of phones comes the ubiquitous presence of peers and the whole online community in which so many teens have invested their lives, their identity, and their worth. And we could say a lot of adults as well. And so such investment comes with cost. It comes with the cost of exposure. It comes with the cost of vulnerability. It comes with the cost of your identity and worth being placed in the whims and opinions and approval and disapproval of others. There's even a new label for this that's been mentioned several times. It's called FOMO, F-O-M-O. And it, it stands for the fear of missing out. The fear of missing out. That's what it's called. It's the constant anxiety of what you may not be a part of. So depression comes with this new advent of social media is sharply on the rise. Interestingly, another consequence is loneliness and isolation. 
I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Loneliness and isolation. In fact, despite the selling pitch of social media as promoting community and relationship, the reality is that it promotes isolation. As one noted in a book, there is one activity that I Jenners do more than their predecessors. They spend more leisure time alone. However, by alone is not meant alone reading, thinking, praying. It means alone with passive entertainment or online interaction. In other words, alone with their phone, alone with their tablet. Even when teens and too often and adults are together, they are not engaged. It's not uncommon for friends to be at another's house, a gathering, school, or home, only to be engaged with their phones. We've all seen that. That's a major problem in youth groups. We have family members now who actually aren't in the state. They go to a, a really good church, and one of the issues they have is the youth group. Their children are having a hard time connecting because they go in, and all of the, the teens are like this. They literally are in a youth group having a hard time connecting with other people. That's a leadership issue, of course, but nonetheless, it's a reality. It's a common part of our culture. It's uh, in many of the testimonies in this one book given, it was common for the teens to say, usually young teens to say, yeah, they're home, but they're not really connected with their family. They're driving, but they're totally engaged with their phone and not with the people around them. So social media promotes isolation even within the context of people. Much as pornography works promising sexual satisfaction but not delivering, so social media promises the satisfaction of connection but delivers quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, the like button is shown again to have the similar dopamine effects as pornography has. One author summarizes several surveys in this way. The result could not be clearer. Teens who spend time on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy and those who spend more time on unscreen activities are more likely to be happy. In other words, I hope I said that right. Those who spend more time on screens are uh, generally more unhappy and those who spend less time are happier. And she notes after summarizing these surveys, there's not a single exception. All activities are linked to less happiness and all on-screen activities are linked to, or excuse me, off-screen activities are linked to more happiness. In other words, this is a direct correlation. It's a consistent finding in studies and surveys across the board. One article on NBC said this, Spending one hour a day chatting on social networks reduces the probability of being completely satisfied with life overall by approximately 14 percentage points. And it produces then not only unhappiness, but an unhappiness that stems largely from a sense of isolation. A sense of isolation. Another problem with social media is not only depression and isolation, but also bullying. Again, this has always been a problem of fallen man, but it's intensified with the advent of social media. The mere breadth of social media and the amount of people that can be reached and join in on bullying tactics amplifies the mob mentality. And this can happen to anybody. As a matter of fact, I was just made aware of two examples of this happening to even prominent people. One, you may have seen this article. This was in the news. Uh, The headline read like this. Australia's Akubra hat girl kills herself after online bullying, family says. Anybody see that? Pretty little girl. Had been doing their ads for that uh, 
campaign since I think she was like two or five or very young, something like that. Uh, took her life. Did the article didn't go into detail of what it was about, but it did have to do with online bullying. She was attractive, young, and accomplished. One author noted that Gabby Douglas, who was the winner of the all-around competition, gold medal winner of all-around competition in the 2012 Olympics, said this recently, that she was cyberbullied after a disappointing performance in 2016. She said, I wonder how many times I cried, probably enough to fill so many gallons of water. And it would be like deep emotional cries because I was so hurt the 21-year-old told People magazine. In fact, one poll suggests that bullying, some form of online bullying, affects 34% of teens. That's one out of three teens. 34% of teens. And the intensifying effect of bullying on social media comes for two reasons. One, because teens' lives, again, are made so open and vulnerable online. Everything is there to be ridiculed or approved. And two, because there's the ubiquitous presence of the phone, the social media, and those who are doing the bullying have constant access to the one they're attacking. There's no escape unless you disconnect completely, which is not a bad idea. Thirdly, depression, isolation, bullying, excuse me, fourthly, shaming. This is the last one. Shaming has become one of the most popular and common ways of expressing self-righteous outrage. And I'm going to mention this later when we apply all of this to Christian character. Because this happens a lot in the church as well. But I'm going to look at it just broadly first. In one article, an author followed up on several people who ended up on the wrong side of shaming. She particularly focused, this author did, on one woman by the name of Justine Seiko. This person, Justine, was traveling to South Africa. And she posted a foolish comment that had a very clear racist uh, intention, most likely. Well, she boarded the plane and ended up in Africa. By the time, from the time she boarded to the time she ended up in, excuse me, South Africa, her post had gone viral. It had been the number one shared post uh, for that day. The end of which, in which she was ridiculed and attacked over and over again. The end result of that was she lost her job, many of her friends, and was publicly humiliated and vilified. The man responsible for it getting such notoriety stated this when asked about it. It's satisfying to be able to say, okay, let's make a racist tweet from a senior LAIAC employee count this time. And I did, and I'd do it over again. In other words, he saw it as his mission to find this person and to publicly shame her and destroy her. But lest we think that's unique to our error, it's not. In older days, shaming usually took the form of public whippings or being put into stocks. As a matter of fact, even at that time, back in the 19th century, the 1800s, late 18th century and into the 19th century, there was a certain glee that was found in that kind of shaming uh, in the general public. As, As a matter of fact, this author noted that Nathan Strong of Hartford, Connecticut, of all places, is recorded as saying this, that he entreated his flock to be less exuberant at executions. He said, Go not to the place of horror with elevated spirits and gay hearts, for death is there, justice and judgment are there. In other words, it's an expression of the human heart to delight in shaming and somebody else's shame. And it's a difficult burden to bear. Uh, Just as a point of interest, the movement against public shaming 
uh, gained momentum in 1787 when Benjamin Rush, a physician in Philadelphia and a signer of the Declaration of Independence, wrote a paper calling for its demise. The stocks, the pillory, the whipping post, the lot. He said, ignominy is universally acknowledged to be worse punishment than death. And yet, it's a common form of retribution and attack through the use of social media. Again, although that was eventually put to an end on social media, it has even greater consequence because of its ability to be spread so far and wide. Let me end that with just this quote. When I first met her, the end of the one article that traced Justine. When I first met her, she was desperate to tell the tens of thousands of people who tore her apart how they had wronged her and to repair what remained of her public persona. But perhaps she had now come to understand both her shaming wasn't really about her at all. Social media is so perfectly designed to manipulate our desire for approval, and that is what led to her undoing. Her tormentors were instantly congratulated as they took Seiko down bit by bit, and so they continued to do so. Their motivation was much the same as Seiko's own, a bid for the attention of strangers." So these are some unintended but real consequences of the advent of social media. Depression, isolation, bullying, and shaming. All which is very intensified through the use of social media. So while there's so much good that can be accomplished, there's also great potential for harm, particularly when this powerful tool is put into the hands of fallen man, whom Paul describes in this way. Their throat is an open grave, Their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. That is the heart of the hands who have such power in social media. So I would just take a break here and just ask this one question to to us as parents. Should we allow our children to be so exposed and unsupervised online? And what measures are we taking, are you taking, to limit and or supervise their online activity? As I mentioned, those are mostly general statistics of culture at large, but these subtle temptations have beguiled Christians in the church as well. The medium of social media has duped many Christians with its subtle allures of self-promotion, covetousness, and self-righteousness in such a way that biblical Christian character has often faded in the background or been forgotten altogether. So let's look at that just briefly. And I want to look at it under several headings. And each of these will be mentioned, as I said earlier, only lightly. But together they should provide both a gauge to our use of social media and a guide to demonstrate greater, greater holiness. So let me, let me do this. And fit yourself in here. And I just want to say even uh, on this, when I make some of these points, there's no one particular person in mind. So if you have conviction, that's between you and the Lord. First of all, social media and Christian speech. Social media and Christian speech. One of the effects of social media, as I mentioned in the first message, is the dehumanization of the individual. That individual becomes merely an object, not a person made in the image of God. And we treat them very often over social media in a way that we never would do if we were with them face to face in their presence. James says this, Let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak. Let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak. That is a demonstration of Christian maturity and Christian character. 
Social media is, however, by its very nature, a medium that tantalizes and tempts toward just the opposite, to be quick to hear and slow to speak. The call of the online, if it were to write its verse, the online community or temptation, if it were to rewrite that verse, would be this. Be quick to speak and slow to hear so that everyone can hear your opinion and your outrage. Would you agree with that? That's very often the kind of communication. And I'm talking about the church here. I'm not even just talking about at large. It's a huge temptation. A huge temptation. Proverbs tells us that wisdom demonstrates the fear of God. And it is a wisdom that demonstrates the ability to think before we speak. To think before we speak. It's the fool who does not fear God who is rash in his words. There's, of course, a lot of Proverbs. I won't list them all, but let me, let me give just a few to you. First, the negative. Proverbs 29, 20 says this. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. How often in our online communication have we fired something off in a fit of emotion and passion only to wish moments later that we could take that back? Or that we could rephrase it in a different way. You see, the medium promotes rashness. It promotes hastiness. However, the wise person in the use of social media will consider their words before they speak. Let me again just give you a few, a few points of God's wisdom on this. Proverbs 10.19, Solomon says this. Where there are... Many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. He goes on to say, the tongue of the righteous is as choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. How often do our words on social media and the things that we post and the things that we react to Express righteousness, words of choice silver, righteous words that many can feed on as they speak truth and they model godly communication, or they rash like swords that pierce those who will be on the other end of them. Proverbs 17 says this, 1727, he who restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. One noted, it's unfortunate that uh, our social media accounts and the ability, once we press send, there isn't a a mandatory lag time. (laughs) We should press send and have a mandatory, you know, at least 30 seconds or minute before it actually went off where we could take it back and erase it. But we need to be those who are Christians who have that kind of restraint in our own hearts out of our obedience to Christ and out of a fear of the Lord. And that's what Proverbs is talking about. We need to learn to restrain our words, not only that we speak with our lips, but that we speak through our fingers as we type into the keyboard. In doing so, we display knowledge. One more, Proverbs sixteen twenty four. Pleasant words are honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. So how should we communicate then online? How should we guard our tongue and our lips? We should speak words that edify, that build up. 
We should restrain our words and when we feel passionate to first consider them before we push send. How about a radical idea of praying before we push send and asking the Lord to guard our hearts and to examine our hearts and to help us have words that are choice words of silver and wisdom, not words that are thrust rashly like a sword into another. Again, I said I was just going to mention these. Let me give another one. And this one I'm going to a little more time on. Social media and biblical confrontation or restoration. So the first is social media and our need to think before we speak, to restrain our words and to make sure that they reflect wisdom and not simply our passion. Another is how do we handle biblical confrontation through social media? One of the most common uses of social media, it seems, for Christians is to rebuke those who have sinned. Expose inconsistency, point out fault, or express some other measure of condemnation. If one were to judge Christianity merely by the posts that are placed on social media, what impression would they leave with? They would likely leave with the impression that we, those who name the name of Christ, are a little less or just more polished in our anger and scorn than the world, the rest of the world. Let me give you one example of that. Uh, After the news report that Joel Osteen's church with nearly 17,000 seats in its auditorium turned away people who were coming for help, social media was filled with responses. Let me give you two that are representative. One said this, this jives perfectly with his behavior during during Katrina. What would Jesus do at Joel Osteen? He'd open the doors and in parentheses and also turn over the tables. Another said this, speaking of Joe Osteen, You're not Christian. Failing to help those in need, come your judgment day, how will you explain your actions to the Lord? Shame on you. And these could go on and on and on and on and on. An important problem with these rebukes, however, is this, is they were simply not accurate. They weren't true. As later investigation revealed, the Lakewood Baptist, I think it was called, is, was flooded itself and couldn't receive Uh, People who needed help. And in fact, there were only three people who asked for help and each one who did received it. They were simply wrong. They were false reports. They were just a visceral, emotional reaction. And yet, how publicized were the reactions or retractions and apologies once this became known? As one noted in relation to this, apologies don't make good stories, do they? They aren't as tweetable. Christian pastor and author Ed Stetzer, Ed Stetzer, in comment on that situation, said this, It seems some Christians hate Joe Osteen more than they love the truth. I'd expect that from the world, but I had hoped better from the church. Yet the urge to immediately address wrong before we have all the information or to express personal outrage without thought of witness or effect on the person. In other words, our witness to the world or the effect on the person or even the truthfulness of it is simply too tempting for many to avoid. And in that light, I would remind us of Proverbs 6.19 who says this. Now I'm not... I'm not as you understand, condoning the ministry of Joe Osteen. We've got some real issues there. Uh, What I am saying is how we as Christians think through our communication and how we handle the idea of biblical rebuke. In that light, let me say this in Proverbs 6. He says this, 619. 
Uh, these are, this is one of the six things that God hates. A fault wit- false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. And again, I'm not affirming him as a brother, but I am saying that the quickness to lash out without right information, the quickness to condemn and judge, even by one who names the name of Christ, whether they are or not, between them and the Lord, uh, is a terrible witness and is not God's design for rebuke. One said this, again, it was in that same article, the matter feels so urgent, so, so we hastily type rebuttals. Veiled as a zeal for truth, we run to our computers and phones to adjust error and admonish the man who got it all wrong. Any public misstep can be called out to legions of our followers who in turn can pass on the public rebuke to their followers. With so many people agreeing with us, confidence grows that we have chosen a worthy battle. So we lash out and we have to admit it just feels so good and it's so right. But is it? Are we sinning when we do this? Are we acting out of self-righteousness or are we acting out of love when we jump on the bandwagon in the comment section, comment section of these kind of public shamings and humiliations? How much of the open rebuke that we often see from Christians, how much of the criticism and denunciation of others who name the name of Christ on social media has a clearly redemptive and restorative tone and goal. How much? You can estimate that yourself. If we make it more personal, let me ask these questions. What is your purpose when posting negative, critiquing, or condemning posts? What is your commitment to that person whom you're critiquing and condemning? That might even be a better question. Does it engender within your own heart as you do that an inner sense of self-righteousness or sorrow for the sin and the error being addressed? Do you feel self-righteous or do you feel saddened? Do you feel committed to their restoration or only to their public condemnation? What is the purpose and goal? Are you as willing to go to that person privately Obviously, this would be someone in your own sphere, as you are to post something publicly. I would say it's a lot easier to post it than it is to pull that person aside that you might have the opportunity to interact with and address it personally. Would you be satisfied, or are you satisfied, merely with the condemnation or pointing out error, or if the person is shamed, but not repentant or restored? What produces the most satisfaction? So there is a tendency, even among Christians, to use social media as a means of attack and exposure rather than restoration and humble promotion of the truth. Let me give you just a few ways that that works out in this category. I think there's like, there's four of them. One is this. We tend to immediately assume the worst motives, violating God's command to love our brother. Paul said that love believes all things. That, in essence, what he's getting out there means I'm going to assume the best motives before I assume the worst motives. I'm going to assume the worst motives only when I have no other course, recourse but to do so. And yet, because of the immediacy and the quickness at which we lash out and jump on a bandwagon of condemnation, we very often violate that command of Scripture to love our brethren. So the first is we tend to immediately assume the worst motives Violating God's command to love our brother. Secondly, we tend to form judgments quickly and without investigation. 
And just as a side note to that, we often fail to be as vigorous in retraction if proved wrong than we were in reacting to the perceived wrong. Proverbs 18.17 says this, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. And by doing so, by being quick, without having all of the facts, we violate then God's wisdom. Proverbs also tells us that it's foolish to give an answer before we hear from the person. That means then to form quick judgments without knowledge and understanding. And yet I would ask you and myself, particularly we're focusing on social media, how often do we react and form judgments in our heart and express then what is in our heart on social media before we even know all of the facts of what happens, before we ask any question, is this true? Did that really happen? Is there another side to the story? Is there more information that I don't have? Until I can answer those questions, I should restrain my lips. That would be wise. I should guard my tongue through what I type. A third way that we in social media tend to sin is this. We neglect private confrontation for public review. I already mentioned that, suggested that earlier. Violating God's command to go to a brother privately. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Show him his fault in private. But again, how often do we point out something publicly rather than going to them privately? And this is just a a footnote here on this point. Let me implore you, and I've learned this the hard way. Let me implore you not to address sin or anything of a substantive nature over email or social media. Just don't do it. If you have a rebuke, if you have some error to point out, don't do it over social media. Do it in person. Call that person. How could you imagine this even? If it were somebody separate from you and you wanted to do that, maybe somebody that you don't have in your immediate sphere of contact, call the person. Contact them privately. Ask questions before you fire something out on social media. I learned that early on in ministry here, spending a lot of time on an email I thought was helpful, only to get a response that was quite shocking to me. And so I showed it to other pastor friends and received that bit of counsel, which has been very helpful. Don't deal with things, rebuke or error over social media. Do it in private. Do it in person. A fourth one. Uh, is we tend to use it only for condemnation without the commitment to restore the brother or bear their burdens, which can be a sign of pride rather than humility. Galatians, you're familiar with this, we covered it in the past, says this, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness each looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted and bear one another's burdens, therefore fulfilling the law of, thereby fulfill the law of Christ, which is at its heart to love our brethren, to love our brethren. One said this, consider the effect that social media has on the lives of those who receive our scorn. Is our zeal for truth fueled by personal contempt or love of their eternal soul? Technology makes it easy for us to lose sight of the image bearer we're addressing. 
Rather than creating a sorrow that leads to repentance, our public rebuke can generate shame, which leads to despair. So those are some pretty serious matters. This could be on and on about that. But I employ you to use that as a gauge, one gauge in what you confront and what you address and what you commit yourself to in terms of online rebuke and shaming and so on and so forth. These are serious matters for us to consider, and we fail far too often in this. And, just as a footnote to that, in doing so, we work against Jesus' own command, which again, somehow we seem to forget when it comes to social media and when it comes to an online presence. And what we forget is our, or the imperative to be a witness to Christ in how we love one another. Right? This commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I've loved you that you also love one another by this men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If somebody knew us only by our online interaction with other Christians would that be the witness that we have? Third, and I'm going to uh, end on this one. And, And again, just mention it. How about social media in terms of Christian character and humility? The pursuit of humility. If our use... In our use of social media, we have to ask ourselves, how is my use promoting humility and self-denial in my heart? How is my use of social media promoting humility and self-denial in my heart? And this requires a great deal of honesty. So we ask ourselves, what is my motive in what I post? Do I secretly want other people to be impressed, but sanitize it with such statements as, so thankful to God, just got a new job and accepted into Harvard? So thankful to God, just got a great bonus. That, that's akin to, well, I just want to offer as a prayer request. You know, we're concerned that, uh, you know, Miss Smith, boy, she's been spending a lot of time with, uh, you know, Mr. Harry along the way. And we just want to pray God will keep her pure. Right? Those kind of things. We can do that on social media. We can sanitize it and make it sound righteous when, if we're honest and shining the light of truth in our hearts, We really just want others to be impressed with ourselves and to admire us for the good things that are happening to us. How often do you see posts like, just yelled at my kids? Just shaded the truth to try to protect myself from guilt. Just looked at something on the internet I shouldn't have prayed for me. We don't see that kind of stuff, do we? Right? We create our own image and that's going to come up uh, next week. But... One is asked this, what happens to our spirit when we think, I can't wait to post this on Facebook? What happens inside our spirit when we say, I can't wait to post this on Facebook? This reality is exasperated by the temptation, even the norm and habit of presenting ourselves always in the best light, only the good, crafting our image that displays only a select part of the reality of who we are. As one noted, social media requires a specific strategy of self-presentation. So I would ask this to us. How is social media either aiding or hindering my pursuit of humility? Does my use of social media cause me to think, that is be preoccupied with, myself less or more? Does my use of, if we're posting all of the time, looking at the nature of the post, and again, I don't have anyone in mind saying this, Can that use of social media in our lives say that it's making me think of myself less 
be preoccupied with myself less or more? It's hard to see how it can be less when we post every part of our lives, even the most mundane things, and always in a positive light. I can't personally, for the life of me, even fathom how that can be a biblical means of promoting humility. Maybe it can. Again, I don't mean that against any person, but I struggle with that personally, uh, how that could be so. So you ask yourself, is my use of social media promoting humility, promoting me thinking of myself less and others more, or is it promoting a preoccupation with myself, my life, what I'm doing, and what others think? You have to answer those. Uh, Here's just a quick concluding thought, and we'll pick up and wrap it up tomorrow, uh, next week. Uh, Every technology comes with the potential for good or harm. Social media provides many opportunities for us to encourage one another in the truth, to model Christian love and integrity and the gentleness of wisdom. But we have to evaluate our use of it. What would the estimation of you be, and do you think of this as an individual, if somebody only knew you through your online interaction? If that was the only thing they knew about you was what you posted, what you said, how you reacted, what opinion would they have of you? How would they think of your Christian character and the reality of your testimony? The second thought. We placed our faith in Christ, the eternal Son, who died for our condemnation, rose for our life, and lives for us and lives in us by the Spirit to redeem our communication and our internet usage. So I would encourage us to pursue social media in a way that when people see our online interaction, it screams grace and it screams redemption. It screams mercy and gentleness of wisdom. It screams words that are choice silver, that are restorative and not condemning. That our use of social media would reflect love for the sinner and especially each other. That it would reflect a desire to build up the body of Christ rather than to tear down another. And that it would model the command of Jesus to the world. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So consider those things and we'll wrap up uh, these, this tomorrow, uh, next week. Let me pray. And then... Uh, John will just lead us in a, maybe a closing uh, verse. Father, thank you for your patience with us. You're so full of mercy and kindness. How, how much we realize that though redeemed, though indwelled by the Holy Spirit, though having received new life, being in union with Christ, having the truth before us, how often we also, or how clearly we can also see the reality of indwelling sin. Help us to be wise. Help us to be thoughtful and attentive to our motives and our use of social media. Help us to have not just the discipline to do that, but the hearts that view all of our interaction and our efforts and our words towards serving, towards truth, towards being a witness to others. And we need to work on that whether we use social media or not, but make that our goal and our aim. And if for some that means just putting it away altogether, then help them to make that decision. If others it just means reforming their practice, then help them to see by your guidance how you would have them to do that. But in all that we do, may we reflect the reality of a transformed life and our love for you, our Savior. 
And we commit these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.